Due to the nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death, murder, gore, and suicide. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. In 1970, a professor stumbled upon a body burned beyond recognition. With no ID, she was nicknamed the Easedall Woman after the valley where she was found. She didn't match any reported missing people, but did match a mysterious woman seen around Norway, a woman who was also never identified. 50 years later, we still don't know who she was, because by 1971, the investigation was mysteriously closed. The police said her death was caused by suicide. The federal agents said it was an accident. But suicide doesn't explain the burns obscuring her face. And an accident doesn't explain the sleeping pills in her stomach. Today, we'll reopen the case and examine if the Easedall woman is the case of a government cover-up and an assassinated spy, or just a bizarre tragedy. This is Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. We air new episodes every Wednesday. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash conspiracy. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? 
Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. High in the mountains above Bergen, Norway, is Isdalm, the Ice Valley. A lake cuts through this stunning remote locale, but the water is so dark that it looks black, fitting for a place whose beauty is matched by terror. See, Isdalm has another more ominous name, Death Valley. In medieval times, people traveled there to die by suicide. In the modern age, adventurers have lost their lives hiking through the unforgiving terrain. And on November 29, 1970, a professor and his two daughters strayed from the beaten path for a morning walk and found a horrifying scene. A body lodged in the crevice of a rock formation, a woman so disfigured by death that they couldn't make out her face. The professor and his daughters raced to report the body, making the hour trek downhill from Death Valley into Bergen. Bergen is a port city on Norway's west coast, known as the Gateway to the Fjords. In 1970, the city was celebrating its 900th anniversary, and it was caught between old traditions and modern chaos. Bergen was quaint and picturesque, full of photo ops like the colorful wooden buildings and beautiful mountains surrounding the harbor. 127,000 people lived there, so the city wasn't small, but it still had a serene, old-fashioned feel, and, like the rest of Norway, a very low crime rate. International events didn't happen in a sleepy town like Bergen, until they found the body in Death Valley. When the professor reported this find, it put the weight of the world on Bergen's detectives, especially Detective Harald Osland. From the start, Detective Osland was a main investigator on the case. Alongside his colleagues, he headed up to Death Valley to see the body and hoped forensic analysts could figure out what happened. The smell made some details obvious. The body between two boulders had burned. Other details were less obvious, since the flames had charred off most of the woman's clothes, and worse, her face. Some burns were so deep they exposed tendons. But here's where it gets weird. Other than the woman's burned body, there was no sign of a fire. Investigators scoured the area, turning up what seemed to be the woman's possessions or could have been trash left by hikers. There was a broken umbrella, half-melted water bottles, a rubber boot, some jewels, a watch, and what might have been the remains of a passport, but not enough paper survived the fire to verify that. Or if there had been, someone took it because someone also cut the labels off the woman's remaining clothes and scraped the logos from the melted water bottles. Now, this could have been done by the victim herself. Tags can be itchy, maybe she had sensitive skin, or maybe someone didn't want her identified. Either way, 
the body was taken to Bergen's University Hospital. The dead woman's identity had been cut, scraped, and burned away, and it was up to the detectives and coroner to find out how and why. The next few days of Detective Harald Oslin's investigation must have been maddening, since his team had no concrete leads. Even worse, once the story of the discovery got out, they had the press on their backs. Now, with everyone in Norway following the case, the nameless woman's autopsy became even more important. Osland hoped the autopsy would tell police how the Easdal woman died, but that wasn't the only information he was after. He had no idea who she even was, so an accurate autopsy was crucial to figuring her out. To reconstruct a woman whose identity was erased by fire and ice. Here's what he learned from the autopsy. The Easdall woman was five foot five, anywhere from 25 to 40 years old, a brunette with brown eyes. Cause of death, smoke inhalation. But there was also a bruise on her neck and 70 sleeping pills in her stomach. In retrospect, experts can't say for certain which of these factors actually led to the Easdall woman's death. But they could still use the autopsy to try to ID her. The autopsy also included fingerprints and a dental exam. The woman had 14 fillings, including gold crowns. This was major because at the time, fillings weren't common in Norwegian dentistry. The filling and crown suggested she was a foreigner or an expat. So Oslin's team started reaching out internationally, hoping to figure out where she may have had her dental work done. And they continued to spread the word locally. News of the murder had sent shockwaves through Bergen. This wasn't great for morale, but it did produce results. On December 2nd, three days after the Easdall woman was found, the police got their first real clues. Employees at the Bergen train station told them a woman matching the victim's description dropped off two suitcases at a storage kiosk on November 23rd. Even better, a fingerprint on a pair of non-prescription glasses in one of the bags matched the Easdall woman's. When investigators heard about this, they burst into cheers. Finally, promising news. Now, they still had to figure out what she did between storing her bags on November 23rd and turning up dead on the 29th. But the police were sure they'd learn more about the Easdall woman from her luggage. Though the items in the bags didn't paint a simple picture. On one hand, there was an image of baby Jesus. On the other, a matchbox from a German mail-order lingerie service. They also found a railway map of Norway and a sewing kit from a Swiss hotel, more than one wig, fake glasses, and cash from across Europe. And we're talking Norwegian kroner, German Deutschmark, Belgian francs, and British pounds. Officers thought they might have found the key when they pulled out prescription eczema cream, but someone had removed the name of both the patient and the prescribing doctor. Combined with the missing labels, the items suggested the Easdall woman was a spy. 
One more item that sealed this theory for investigators. A notebook with a sequence of handwritten letters and numbers. O, 22, O, 28, P, O, 29, P, S, O, 30, B, N, 5. It reads like a secret code with no key to decode it. In the end, there was exactly one lead they could follow up on. A plastic bag from Oscar Rurtvet's footwear store in the coastal city of Stavanger, about 130 miles south of Bergen. Officers went down there to speak to Rolf, the owner's 22-year-old son, who remembered helping out a very memorable woman on one of his last shifts. Years later, he recounted his story to investigative journalist Marit Higraf and documentary producer Neil McCarthy on their BBC-produced podcast, Death in Ice Valley. Here's what he told them. On November 18, 1970, Rolf assisted a brown-eyed brunette who seemed unusual. She wore a fur coat and had a tan. Between the tan and her accent, Rolf guessed she may have been French or from somewhere in the Mediterranean, or maybe Germany. Rolf wasn't really sure, but he was sure of two things. The woman was picky and she smelled. She spent a long time in the store, trying on boots and spreading her distinct odor. Rolf couldn't place the scent. It wasn't the typical rank of body odor and might've been something spicy. After spending some time debating over boots, she left without buying any, only to come back and purchase a pair of blue celebrity boots the next day. The same kind found on the Easdall woman's body. Rolf's smelly customer was definitely her. Now, Oslin finally had a sense of the Easdall woman's personality and her appearance. Oslin's team checked out Stavanger's hotels, looking for a woman who fit the shoe salesman description and stayed there around November 18th. Sure enough, they found a match at the Hotel St. Svithun, and the booking had a name. Fenella Lurk. It was a huge step. But Detective Oslin's carefully reconstructed image was already about to shatter. Coming up, we look into Fenella and fall down the rabbit hole. Now, back to the story. In December 1970, Bergen police discovered the Easdall woman's name, Fenella Lurk. She checked into the Hotel St. Svithun in Stavanger on December 9th and left on the 18th. She left a strong impression on hotel employees. A bellboy who helped her with her bag remembered her as serious and unsmiling, with deep red lips. Another employee found her to be quiet, but not shy, exactly. She just seemed like she had things to do, plans that she didn't want to share. She also wore a fur hat, the kind the employee associated with the Soviet Union. At the time, a hotel guest in Norway had to fill out a registration card with details like their passport info and occupation, 
So Fenella's card provided the police with even more insights. She was indeed a foreigner, a Belgian citizen. The confusion over which languages she spoke was explained by the fact people spoke French, German, and Flemish in Belgium. Maybe Fenella did too. The police contacted Belgian authorities to verify her identity. They also sent out Fenella's handwriting from the hotel card. It had distinctive flourishes, so they hoped to find matches at other hotels. Soon, they found a taxi driver in Bergen who said Fenella traveled there from Stavanger by ferry on November 18th. She put her luggage in storage on November 23rd, and she was found dead on the 30th. So it should have been easy to fill in the blanks about Fenella's time in Norway. Except no other hotels had her on record. Nothing in Bergen or Norway at large. And then the Belgian police got back to the Bergen police. There was no Belgian citizen named Fenella Lurk. She'd given the hotel in Stavanger a fake name and fake passport number. Fenella Lurk didn't exist, not legally. And yet people in Stavanger had very vivid memories of her. It was this writing that led the Bergen police to another break in the case, one that radically altered the way Detective Oslin saw his victim yet again. Over the past year, a woman with matching handwriting had checked into nine different hotels under seven different names. She was Genevieve Lancière in Oslo in March, Claudia Tielt in Bergen in April, Alexia Zarna-Merchez in the Neptune Hotel that October. Each woman resembled the other reports. Elegant, the kind of woman you only see on the silver screen, and spicy-smelling, perhaps due to her foreign cigarettes. At most hotels, she claimed she was Belgian and wrote her info down on the registration card in German. It wasn't perfect, though. There were spelling mistakes and awkward bits that seemed to indicate she wasn't a native German speaker. And her stories weren't always consistent, either. On some stays, Fenella listed her occupation as trader. In others, she was an antiques dealer. It was clear Fenella, or whatever her real name was, didn't want to be found. She frequently demanded room changes and wouldn't let the maids in to clean. One housekeeper reported that Fenella moved a table against her door to prevent intruders. Perhaps she was trying to protect state secrets, though further interviews with hotel staff turned up a different story. She could have been a sex worker. She was checking into hotels for short stays under fake names. But she was also checking into a lot of hotels and using a lot of names, which seemed like overkill for sex work, especially once Belgian authorities confirmed that every single name and passport number connected to the Eesdal woman was a fake. It was strange strange enough to pique the suspicions of other investigators, including Urnolf Tofta, an officer in the Norwegian intelligence service. Though it's hard to explain why Norwegian intelligence would be investigating a sex worker. Tofta's involvement 
as opaque as it is, points to espionage. Meanwhile, the police turn their focus to eyewitness reports. Maybe Ostland and his team felt like the crime scene was a dead end. After all, the autopsy seemed inconclusive, and so did the luggage. At least the eyewitness reports matched up. One came from an employee at the Neptune Hotel named Allfield Rongness. She was dazzled by the Easdall woman and reported to police that she'd winked at her. She also saw her in the hotel dining hall with two German naval officers. She didn't recall her talking to them, though, just sitting nearby. Investigators also spoke to a housekeeper from the Hotel Rosencrantz, where the Easdall woman stayed on November 18th. She recalled an odd incident. She'd gone into the room to turn down the bed without realizing the Easdall woman was there, along with a youngish, blonde man. He was tall, fit, and handsome in a striking gray suit. The Easdall woman seemed sad, grief-stricken even, and though she let the housekeeper do her job, neither she nor the man said a single word. Though she may have just been a woman who kept to herself, someone who wasn't very chatty, two men or maids. And unfortunately, the next break in the case didn't clarify much either. A couple of weeks after the Easdall woman was found dead, the police hired a military codebreaker to crack the series of strange letters and numbers they found in her possession. The spy theory was picking up steam, so investigators had to be excited about the results. Maybe they held the key to a secret identity or mysterious instructions from a handler. When the truth came out, it was probably a bit of a disappointment. It was a shorthand code for travel plans. The letters were months and cities, the numbers, dates. Consider the first string, O22028P. That lined up with the date she was at the Vera Hotel in Paris, October 22nd to October 28th. The O stood for October, the P for Paris. The next code, O29PS, matched her move from Paris to Stavanger, P to S. Then, O30BN5 lines up with the next trip to Bergen, which was from October 30th to November 5th, when she stayed at the Neptune. And when the Easdall woman went off the record, so did the notebook. The code ends with ML23NMM. Now, 23N seems to stand for November 23rd, the last day she was seen alive at the rail station, but ML and MM might represent where she stayed during the night she didn't have a hotel booking. But police never broke this part of the code. And none of the intelligence agencies across Europe, the Middle East, and Africa responded to Detective Oslin's queries about a foreign agent on Norwegian soil. But the most crushing blow was yet to come. Around Christmas of 1970, three weeks after the Easdall woman's body was found, Oslin's higher-ups held a press conference. When reporters prodded Bergen's chief of the Criminal Investigations Unit, Oscar Hordness, about whether the Easdall woman was a spy, 
He responded, quote, No, I think we can safely say there's nothing to support this. Actually, we can completely rule it out. And when pressed on whether the Easdall woman was murdered, he said, quote, No, well, the case hasn't been closed yet, but based on what we know, well, there's nothing giving us any reason to assume anything different. Crime scene, toxicology, and autopsy reports do not seem to change that impression. A few days later, Bergen Chief of Police Asbjörn Breen announced that the Easdall woman had died by suicide. With that, they made the official call. Case closed. It was a surprise even within the Bergen police. Many officers had discussed the possibility of a suicide, but few actually believed it. The pills weren't fully dissolved in her stomach, and the likelihood she set herself on fire was pretty low. We don't know exactly how he reacted, but we can imagine it was a devastating turn for Detective Osland. He'd poured himself into the investigation, and this was more or less the end of it, which feels premature. We have the benefit of hindsight, but there were stories about the Easdall woman's associates that you'd think would have merited more follow-up like the maid at the Hotel Rosencrantz, who saw her sitting with a young blonde man in her room, or the Hotel Neptune server, who spotted her near German naval officers. And these weren't the only sightings of the Easdall woman with mystery men. Another Neptune server named Lillian clocked her with a gray-haired man at dinner. They sat in total silence and looked at a piece of paper a Bergen shop employee named Siri witnessed the Easdall woman and a dark-haired man buying a mirror. The two of them argued in what she thought was an Eastern European language. These men felt like obvious targets for Osland. They could have been the Easdall woman's fellow spies, handlers, or informants. But while Lillian and Siri have both assured journalists Marit Higraf and Neil McCarthy that they spoke to the police, According to their podcast, Death in Ice Valley, those men they saw with the Easdall woman weren't mentioned in the Bergen police reports. It's hard to see why. From everything we know, dogged Detective Oslin wasn't the type to leave stones unturned. Maybe officers working for him forgot to include the stories about the men in their reports, or maybe they were told to omit them by someone much higher up than Osland. We don't want to be conspiratorial, or maybe we do, but remember, the Bergen police weren't the only ones investigating the Easdall woman. Intelligence agents like Urnolf Tofta gathered evidence in a parallel effort, and just as the Bergen police closed their case, the secret police received startling information about the Easdall woman's possible plans. Shortly after the Easdall woman's story hit the media, a fisherman named Berthon Rott came forward. That November, he'd seen an unusual woman on the docks where he worked in Tanonger. She looked Russian to his eyes, and far too well-dressed for the harbor, totally out of place among the fishermen. Rott watched her chat with a naval officer for a long while, an officer stationed right near some Norwegian Navy ships. 
vessels the government was using to test a revolutionary target-seeking missile. Specifically, she was looking at the Penguin, an anti-ship missile co-funded by the U.S. Navy. This was during the Cold War, and Norway was in a unique spot. It was the U.S.'s ally in NATO, but geographically, it was closer to the USSR. So close that Soviet ships were said to lurk off the coast, faking breakdowns to gather intel. If the Easdal woman was a spy, say, for the USSR, Tanonger was the perfect place to collect information that could reshape the arms race and potentially change the course of the Cold War. After the Easdal woman died and rumors spread about her job, Rott reached out to contacts in the armed forces to let them know about his sighting. It was an act of altruism. He just wanted to help. But on December 23rd, just after the Bergen police had all but closed the case, Rott had a chilling encounter. He was at the Stavanger rail station, set to go on holiday with his wife and kids. As they prepared to get on a train, two men appeared and ushered Rott into a car. They armed him with weapons, assuring him he needed protection, then let him go. We're not sure who they were, but once the intelligence file on the Easdall woman was unsealed years later, a report was found from December 22nd, 1970, summarizing Rott's story. It's possible Rott's contacts in the armed forces may have passed his story along. And since Rott had his encounter with the mystery men just a day after making his report, it seems highly likely that he was tracked down by members of the secret police. But why would they give him weapons? And why would the Bergen police close a case that was still clearly being worked on? Were they ordered to close it? So public interest in a sensitive story died down. Coming up, after a dead end in the 70s, the case finds new life today. Now, back to the story. On February 5th, 1971, two months after her body was found, the Easdall woman was laid to rest in a Bergen cemetery. As an icy rain fell, a priest read from the Bible. Though her religion was unknown, she received a Catholic burial. Eighteen people attended her funeral, all of them police officers. The closest thing she had to loved ones were people who'd never met her. Those who tried to keep the Easdall woman's case alive likely felt torn about burying her. In so many ways, it was the end of the case. But they did leave one door open. By burying her in a white, zinc-lined coffin, the zinc would preserve her remains, and with them, a shred of hope that new technology or leads could bring some answers. They also kept her fingerprints, tissue samples, and her jaw in storage. They still felt the dental work was a possible lead. Maybe someday, her friends and family would have the chance to pay their respects. And in the following years, police did pursue new leads. Four foreigners were arrested in Oslo and Bergen in 1972 
after authorities uncovered an international fraud ring. Its members used fake passports, just like the Easdall woman. It brought a new theory. If she wasn't a spy, maybe she was a criminal. But the arrested fraudsters denied ever knowing her. In 1973, four Israeli Mossad agents had their covers blown when, in a case of mistaken identity, they accidentally assassinated a Moroccan waiter in the city of Lillehammer. The incident confirmed there was foreign spy activity in Norway, but when the agents were asked about the Isdal woman, they claimed not to recognize her. Meanwhile, Detective Oslin kept his files, perhaps hoping to find some new clue later on. Oslin's family later said that he didn't have a good feeling about the case, much like other officers in the Bergen police. And they weren't the only ones. Journalist Knut Havik had a bad feeling, too. He'd followed the case since day one, and though only in his 20s, Havik was a senior crime reporter at a top Norwegian paper. He was friendly with the authorities in Oslo, including the secret police. During the investigation, he wrote stories supporting the theory that the Isdal woman was a spy. In later interviews, Havik claimed that in the 70s, he gained access to police files on the Isdal woman. Files that may have contained crucial evidence. Havik believed the case wasn't closed due to a lack of leads, but because the secret police stepped in. Ostland was getting too close to finding out the truth, which presented a national security risk. Havik alleged the Isdal woman was a spy, but a bad one. Her requests and her smell made her too memorable. Eventually, someone caught on. He theorized they force-fed her pills to make it look like a suicide, then burned her. The Norwegian authorities had to cover up the truth of the murder, otherwise the public might wonder what other secret activities were happening under their noses. Apparently, Havik's secret files even included a cassette tape, but a note on the envelope said only the intelligence chief could open it, and Havik wasn't ready to risk the punishment for listening. And so the case remained closed without any concrete answers. The mystery of the Isdal woman haunted Norway for decades, taking on the same eerie legacy as the Kennedy assassination. People wanted answers. In 2002, almost 30 years later, Norway's intelligence services finally publicly admitted they'd conducted an investigation looking into the Isdal woman. Former federal intelligence agent Ulnof Tofta told journalists that, in his opinion, she wasn't a spy and she wasn't murdered. He claimed that people he'd talked to said she often carried a big can of hairspray. His theory was that the Easdall woman was near a fire in Death Valley when the can accidentally caught fire and exploded. However, since there was no hairspray at the crime scene, and no evidence of a campfire, and we're not sure there's enough evidence to back up this theory. And it still doesn't solve the mystery of all the sleeping pills in her system, 
nor does it explain her multiple identities, her strange behavior, or the fact that she didn't line up with any reported missing people. Over a decade after that, around 2017, journalists from the BBC and Norwegian TV network NRK got permission to read the secret police's notes. To their dismay, the file was thin, and the tape Canute Havik saw but didn't listen to, it was nowhere to be found. Still, momentum gradually built up, and the Norwegian police reopened the case. They hoped DNA technology would help track down her identity once and for all. Thanks to the Berrigan police's resourcefulness in the 70s, forensic analysts were able to retrieve the preserved jaw from storage. They performed isotope analysis on the teeth. It's sensitive enough to determine what the person ate when they were growing up, or even the qualities of the earth that food was grown in. They also performed DNA tests on preserved tissue samples and took her handwriting to specialized analysts. And they spoke to experts, like former KGB spies, to come up with ideas about the Easdahl woman's life. Now, despite all this work, we want to warn you up front, there's still no conclusive answer. But some strong theories have emerged. For one, the unique smell was probably garlic. The spice hadn't entered common Norwegian cuisine in 1970, but a world traveler would have plenty of access to garlic. Then, her age. Though she listed herself as 25 on hotel bookings, the Easdahl woman was closer to 40. Her ethnicity seems to be German, and when you pair that with an age of around 40, it's possible she fled Germany during World War II. In France or Belgium, she picked up new languages and accents. And probably lost her family. Many people suspect the Easdahl woman was Jewish, and her family was murdered in the Holocaust. Or when she went missing, they presumed she was murdered, but didn't have the resources to confirm it. And if she was a Jewish World War II survivor, with no family and impressive language skills, she was the perfect secret agent for Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency. Mossad was active in Norway in the 1970s, hunting down former Nazis. But even in the 1970s, a Nazi hunter might have a target on her back. So maybe that's what she was doing in Bergen. Maybe that's who she was. Or maybe it wasn't. All we know is that whoever covered up the Easdahl woman's identity succeeded. For now. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. As you might have noticed, we've made some changes to bring a fresh perspective to the show, and there will be more coming. I do want to take a moment to acknowledge my longtime co-host and friend, Molly Brandenburg, who will no longer be joining me. I am truly grateful for her invaluable contributions over the years. Together, we built an extensive library of episodes for you to enjoy anytime, anywhere. Finally, you may not know this, 
But Conspiracy Theories is a collaborative effort with a dedicated team of researchers and writers who tirelessly craft compelling stories for you every week. Moving forward, you can expect to hear from our talented staff as they move from behind the scenes and join the show. I hope you're as excited as we are for this thrilling new chapter. Stay tuned for more updates and thank you for your continued support. For more information on the Easdall Woman, amongst the many sources we used, we found the work of investigative journalists Marit Hegraf and Neil McCarthy in their BBC-produced podcast, Death in Ice Valley, extremely helpful to our research. Do you have a personal relationship to the stories we tell? Send a short audio recording telling your story to conspiracystories at spotify.com. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify podcast. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Amin Osman, edited by Sarah Batchelor, Terrell Wells, and Maggie Admire. Fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez and Mickey Taylor, researched by Sapphire Williams, and sound designed by Alex Button. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our head of production is Nick Johnson. And Spencer Howard is our post-production supervisor. I'm your host, Carter Roy. <laughs>